running and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard, hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. everyone. My name is Leonie Hameson. Welcome to our show, Talk Out of School on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM and WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. Today, I have two guests, Jonathan Soto, organizer for Congress member AOC, who will tell us about the tutoring program she's created for her district to make up for the lack of teacher support during remote learning at this time of pandemic. And then Dr. Preston Green, professor at the University of Connecticut, who's written a fascinating article proposing that reparations to black communities for slavery and discrimination be partly made in the form of government expanded funding for their public schools. But first, some local news. Tomorrow, middle school buildings will reopen for the 62,000 New York City middle school students who opted into in-person learning last fall. Meanwhile, the debate rages on whether all schools should reopen at this point, what precautions should be used, including social distancing and mask wearing, whether this depends on the level of community spread of COVID. And it seems like every day a new study comes out with a different result about the risk of COVID transmission in schools. Most of the studies show parents and teachers are very conflicted, which is not surprising given the confusing and often contradictory evidence. A poll was released last week that said that a majority of Americans believe that schools should not reopen to in-person learning until all teachers have been vaccinated. And while several states are giving special priority to doing just that, New York is not among them. Though teachers are on the long list of groups that are eligible for vaccination, there has been no centralized effort to make sure that they are. In other news, late Monday, the federal government announced that they would not allow states to cancel the annual standardized test this spring for grades three through eight and once in high school, even in the midst of this pandemic. 10 states, including New York, had requested waivers that were rejected. It was discouraging, to say the least, that even in the midst of this uh, crisis, the government is insisting on tests that will be stressful to students and even less reliable in their results than before, given the unequal conditions in which these tests will be given across the country. In New York, advocates will be urging parents to opt out even more than before in a state where there's already about a 20% opt-out rate. Also last week at a city council hearing, the New York City Department of Education announced that the police department is considering hiring 475 more school safety agents this year at a cost of 20 million, even as all high school buildings remain closed and there's a shortage of teachers and counselors to provide the academic and emotional support that students badly need. Even though the police hire and train school safety agents, their costs come straight out of the DOE budget, as the DOE is forced to pay pay the police for their services, whether they want them or not, at a price of about $300 million a year. And there are more agents in our schools than counselors and school psychologists and social workers combined. Last year, the mayor promised to eventually move these agents to be hired and supervised by DOE and allow their ranks to be diminished over time, but this hasn't happened here. 
Contrast this to what's happened in Los Angeles, as well as Minneapolis, Seattle, Oakland, Denver, and Portland, which, according to the New York Times, have begun to sever, suspend their relationships with local police departments or reduce their policing ranks. Some districts have said they're reallocating the funds to hire more social workers and mental health professionals to handle problems instead. But now I'd like to turn to my first guest, Jonathan Soto, an organizer with the office of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, whose office has enlisted volunteer tutors to try to make up for the lack of support that too many students in her district are experiencing with remote and blended learning. We invited AOC herself, but she was understandably busy with other events. Jonathan, thank you so much for being here. And thank you so much for uh, having me. Happy to join you and your audience. So whose idea was this originally to organizing uh, a, a tutoring program for students in AOC's district? So post-pandemic, the campaign operation really focused on serving mutual aid through food deliveries, mass distribution, over a million dollars raised. And we partner very closely with parents, um, understandably, because schools um, usually serve as communal interaction spaces, right, where folks come for knowledge in communities and direct services at times. And during crises and the pandemic, a lot of mutual aid networks emerged from there. So the Congresswoman has an education background, um, particularly was uh, worked as a director of, a, of an enrichment program for career readiness. Um, also, I am uh, organizing a public school parent also with a 10-year-old in the school system right there. So we partnered with schools in Corona, Throgsneck, Parkchester, um, and Jackson Heights, and basically started uh, recruiting uh, tutors for one-to-one -one volunteer uh, tutoring um, and focusing pr primarily on homework help. Um, homework help is important because obviously we don't want to claim we're an educational program. We're really a mutual aid program, right? And operationally, parents send homework an hour before the meeting. They review the homework. The one-to-one -one interaction is so important. We're not here to supplement, rather support teachers. It's impossible. I see daily remote learning. How can you provide one-on-one -on -one attention to 30 kids simultaneously on screen? It's, it's a horrible situation, you know, that teachers have been placed in. So this really is a program to supplement and support um, um, teachers as well um, and try to connect the volunteer network of the congresswoman. Very extensive. We have 13,000 tutors sign up which is a lot, right? Um, and our goal is to connect to 1,000 students. So far, we've signed up 400 by June. And then we want to create toolkits, um, you know, that way people can learn how to do this in their own communities, right? Uh, this is a, a cooperative autonomy. We cooperate on shared kind of models. So we use, uh, right, like Airtable. We use um, uh, Slack. We use Google Sheets, right? It's data systems that allow people to just use this and coordinate, but we then do coaching. Um, and we want to advocate also that, you know, the federal government and also local governments think of this as potential job programs, right? Um, and happy to talk more about that as well. So did I get these figures right? You have 14,000 tutors, 13,000 tutors, and only 400 students. Is that right? So 1,300 folks that signed 1, up to volunteer. 13,000. Yeah. No, 13,000. Yeah, it's a lot. 13,000 <laughs> 13, people. Yeah, it's a lot. Signed yeah, up, to up to volunteer. Yeah. But you only have 400 kids who've yes. signed up. So you're yeah. actually now look probably looking for more kids than tutors. Is that right? And what we're doing, correct. And what we're doing is we're going to put toolkits now um, together so that people learn um, how to just, right, because privacy and safety is critically important, first of all, right? So everyone does need a background check. 
Um, so we do a background check. Also um, ask people uh, to submit their information and, you know, go through an application process. Right. Because we, we do want to make sure that people are doing this in a safe environment. Um, you know, we have community agreements and, and, and ways that we engage. But, you know, really, you've seen mutual aid networks uh, emerge in times of crisis. Right. When when the state fails to support folks with their basic needs. Um, and this is just an interesting dynamic that we see happening um, in different spaces. So it's just um, for tutoring and, and virtual homework help, it's been interesting to see it like develop and blossom here. So how many of these 1,300 volunteers have actually been vetted and trained to do the job at this point? So far, we have 400 um, okay. for the students. Yeah, so we have four, right. we do it by the time we increase the student sign up, then we train um, someone. And our goal was um, 1,000 by the end of the year. And then create a platform for others to uh, toolkits to learn how to do them and direct the 12,500 tutors. Um, all right, here throughout the country, this is how you can do this on your own with our resources and, and skills. So, yeah. So, so do you want, I mean, what, what sort of um, help do you need for, for our listeners? Do you want more students to sign up? And if so, uh, what neighborhoods um, are you drawing from? Well, we're definitely uh, focused on meeting our thousand. Um, and we are on track to meet that within the district. Um, so the Congresswoman's district is uh, East, East Bronx, um, Queens, uh, Corona. Uh, we're working in uh, Jackson Heights, um, Parkchester, uh, Throgs Neck. But we also, um, many people throughout the city, right? South Bronx, um, East Brooklyn have reached out on learning how to do this. So we're, that's why we really want to develop the toolkits, which will be available um, by the end of March. And that way people could learn how to do this in their own neighborhoods. Um, but also having people understand that there should be an advocacy element as well, and that we should push for localities to fund this, for federal government to fund um, tutoring programs, right? Um, obviously, we want to prioritize that, um, you know, black and brown students from directly impacted areas um, are prioritized. Oftentimes, these programs uh, uh, kind of bring in a helicoptering in um, element that we want to definitely avoid and prioritize um, this direct investment and work um, and potential funding and, and people that could serve as tutors, right? Uh, people, so many people during the pandemic substitute teachers without work, you know, um, there could be something interesting here. And, and uh, it's, it's interesting to see that develop. So in the UK, there's a national um, funded uh, tutoring program for students. Um, and there are several bills in Congress right now, especially in the Senate, to expand AmeriCorps program, which I think is would be really helpful because there are a lot of uh, young college graduates who don't have jobs, who are looking for something useful to do to provide tutoring for schools, especially in high needs neighborhoods. Is this something that AOC supports? Yeah, we definitely want to support um, and also focus on how these programs, similar to programs we saw develop um, during times of crisis in our, uh, our country's history, how it could serve as a direct infusion of direct jobs program um, for people locally. Um, that's critical, right? During the time of the pandemic, um, so many people have been just displaced, right? So, you know, maybe it's, a, you know, homework help for all, uh, UBI for whoever decides to become a tutor, right? These are ideas that I'm sure localities can have in partnership with the federal government 
Um, but yeah, we have to be imaginative. Um, you know, this is also within the, the, the substructure of the general economy. You know, the Congresswoman has the Green New Deal thinking about mass investment for job programs as, as like a substructure of our economy. I think that's critical as well. And public education is just right for that. Um, very low hanging fruit. And we've seen that public school stakeholders have been directly impacted. As a public school parent, I see with my daughter remote learning, it, it's wild what's happening. It's wild what's happening for the teachers, that they're not being prioritized for vaccine when really our economy is really shaped by our public school education. We've seen how both have not served, you know, working people's interests. It's amazing to me that teachers are recognized as an essential part of the economy and they should be recognized as frontline workers with the same priority for vaccination. Several states, as I mentioned earlier, are actually doing this, um, making sure all their teachers are getting vaccinated in the next few weeks. And I, I just don't know why it's not happening here in New York. So how can folks support your effort if you... Um, um, your effort in terms of, you know, helping with resources or volunteers or what should they do if they want to make sure that this program um, is successful and expanded? So we have a sign up form uh, for parents. Um, we have a lot of tutors, right, or volunteers that have supported. So um, we definitely want to share the toolkit for, for people to learn how to do this. But as of right now, um, we have a form that people can complete at. It's going to spell it out quickly. Uh, bit.ly backslash homework helpers NYC. So the H in homework and the H in helpers is capitalized and NYC capitalized. So again, bit.ly backslash homework helpers NYC. That's the parent sign up form, student sign up form, guardian sign up form. And if you're a PTA member, we have our email that you could reach out there and we can reach out to discuss potentially okay. supporting. I will I will put all this um, on the podcast and the WBAI website for listeners to follow up on if you didn't get that um, URL. How about financially? Are you looking for financial support as well to help fund this? At this time, we are good. Um, we have the ability to do background checks, which is um, great for our folks. Um, but we will definitely, um, you know, let, let people know against this is a uh, a people powered volunteer movement. Um, and we want to also advocate that, you know, folks should be paid. Um, the federal government should be doing this. The government's locals should be providing tutoring for all. Um, and this could be a jobs program. So we want to advocate for on that end as well. Well, thank you so much for being here, Jonathan. Thank you. Thanks to AOC for, for being um, on the front line and actually organizing this program, which really should exist across the country. And as you say, should be funded by the federal government. And I hope that, that you and, and hopefully AOC could come on the show um, later this year and talk about her efforts in this regard. Thank you so much to you and for your advocacy uh, also on your end for students, teachers, and all public education stakeholders. Take care. Thank you. So now I'd like to switch gears and invite onto the show, Dr. Preston Green. Hello there, how are you doing? Hi, hi. It's so great to have you. Um, he, he's an attorney and education expert who teaches at the University of Connecticut. Uh, Dr. Green, welcome onto the show. You, along with Bruce Baker of Rutgers, co-authored a fascinating article recently that I'd love you to talk about. You have this novel idea that reparations could be paid to Black communities who've suffered from slavery and continuing discrimination 
by boosting funding in their communities, public schools. Did I summarize that? I that right? Yes, you did. You did a great job with that. So can you start off by telling us briefly about the research showing that schools in black neighborhoods are underfunded and why that is? Sure, I, sure, I will do that. First of all, it's important to understand that there's been underfunding since the separate but equal era, um, the famous uh, Plessy case. And there's research showing that uh, black schools have been historically underfunded even prior to Brown v. Board of Education. But, you know, it was hoped that after, that once Brown occurred, that there would at least would be equitable funding in addition to school desegregation, but that has not happened. In fact, uh, EdBuild, which is a um, nonprofit entity that has been studying school funding, found that in the 2015-2016 school year, that there was a $23 billion differential between white and non-white school districts. Uh, this includes black school districts. And this amounts to more than $2,200 per student. And, let, and if you were to think that uh, this is really um, maybe a poverty issue, uh, they found that even if you control for poverty, there's a difference of um, like poor white school districts receive $1,500 per student more than non-white school districts. So why did that occur? So in the case of black uh, school districts in the 19, um, the federal government, it's important to understand that, you know, you know, the, that school funding, that a primary driver of school funding is local property taxes. And, but the, um, you know, in black school districts, black communities tend to have, you know, lower property tax values in white communities, I mean, generally speaking. And the federal government has actually helped to contribute to this uh, sad state of affairs uh, through the process, through the uh, policy known as redlining. Uh, the federal, federal housing authority in the, in the 1930s um, really ramped up um, community building in white enclaves, segregated enclaves, uh, provided mortgages for those enclaves, but did not provide similar um, funding and mortgages for um, Black communities that were segregated. So this really helped to create this, um, you know, historical um, differential difference in funding or difference in, um, in, in housing values, which, of course, contributes to the disparities that we see now. The f- also, and of course, there were lots of communities, um, you know, suburban communities, which completely locked out blacks from buying houses in their midst. Is that's that very, right as well? That's also correct. That's also right as well. And we also have to talk about uh, school district. You know, the, uh, the designing of school districts. You know, school districts and that school district boundaries have also. There's also a really, really sordid history about racial you know, racial drawing of school district boundaries. So if you combine all that, in addition to this, you have the Supreme Court um, in a trio of decisions also creating um, the situation that we see in the present time. There's a 1973 Rodriguez decision in which the Supreme Court ruled that uh, school funding disparities based on local property taxation um, was constitutional. Now, even though this is seen as a wealth-based disparity uh, case, uh, scholar, one scholar has stated that, you know, that um, race was the elephant in the room, that this was, you know, this addressed, this affected Mexican-American students. And it was also, they also were fully aware that the impact this would have on Black students as well. But after Rodriguez, you had a 
dual decisions. Uh, Milliken v. Bradley in 1974, where the court held that you could not, basically you could not include suburban school districts in a metropolitan desegregation remedy. And this kind of froze in uh, these disparities. You, know, you mean they, even if those local districts or states wanted to broaden the, the boundaries of where kids could attend school, they, they couldn't do it? No, that's a little later. I mean, that's, um, oh, okay. I mean, in the 1970s, we were still in the process of court-mandated desegregation. Okay. So, you know, but the courts, you know, during that time, the courts were involved in addressing these disparities in part because legislatures at that time were not. So, you know, the courts had taken that role. But the Milliken decision, the courts real signaled a real sort of moving away um, from court-mandated desegregation. And there were a variety, a number of cases that followed. And but what year was that? This was in 1974. Okay. So this kind of baked in these, you know, black school districts that were unequally funded. Now, three years later, um, in a case that is popularly known as Milliken II, this is also Milliken v. Bradley, the Supreme Court did find that school districts, you know, that a court could mandate funding, you know, could provide additional funding, compensatory funding to these urban districts. And indeed, this has been um, referred to as a limited reparations plan. Um, so, but the problem with that plan, with these sorts of programs, was that they were limited in scope. They were, they didn't actually address the, you know, the, the, the uh, local property taxation problems and school funding problems that you know, they're historically in place. And it was also for a limited amount of time. So because, you know, so there was a chance we were hopeful that maybe Milliken too could have led to some addressing of these disparities, but it did not. And that is in part what we laid out as the big reason why we are in the place that we are today. So the research is strong and you go over some of that in your article about how more funding is linked to, to more opportunity, more learning, better student outcomes, and that schools with the high concentrations of uh, minority students are less likely to have experienced teachers, fewer advanced courses, uh, buildings which lack updated ventilation and, and heating systems. And yet so far, court cases have not been effective in equalizing funding within states. Here in New York City, we have something called the Campaign for Fiscal Equity lawsuit, which we won in the state's highest court more than a decade ago. And there was a settlement that was agreed to by then the Governor Spitzer, which Governor Cuomo has refused to fund. So we are still waiting on equitable funding for our schools in, here um, in New York City. Um, instead, you, you and Bruce Baker say that more equitable funding could be driven via a system of state reparations. Can you explain how that would work? Yes, yes. Well, we've identified really kind of like a four-pronged strategy that states could use in a reparations program. And it would, first of all, call for um, compensation to school districts, you know, compensation to school districts that have been underfunded uh, because of their Black student population. So throughout these school districts, there would be uh, makeup for, you know, additional, additional funding for those Black students in every school district. Secondly, we would call for rebates to Black taxpayers. You know, as we lay out in our article, there's been this historic um, 
you know, underfunding and under, you know, undervaluation of, of black property. And so this would be a way of kind of addressing that historical harm. Thirdly, we call for increased funding, um, you know, increased funding to school districts that are racially isolated. Um, you know, research has shown and research, in fact, that Bruce, Bruce Baker and I have actually uh, conducted has shown that uh, additional funding will be necessary to provide uh, greater outcomes for racially isolated school districts. And then finally, we call for redistribution of funding um, caused by systemic policies um, that have led to the underfunding of black school districts. We call for, you know, we call for a redistribution of that funding uh, that has gone to these white school districts to be brought to black school districts. So those are the four uh, prongs that we call in our reparations plan. So a couple questions. Um, why would states that have refused to fund their schools equitably in the first place agree to any of these specific ideas you have for making um, school funding more equitable? Yeah, I mean, um, I think that we may be at a time, you know, there are always periods in time where we start talking about reparations. And I think that right now we are in such a time where we can start pushing for them. I mean, there is greater acknowledgement, I think, in policy, among policymakers, that there is, that there are historic racial funding disparities. And we've also noted that, you know, um, we'll talk that 10 cities have supported the idea, 10 states have supported the idea of, um, you know, um, House Bill 40, promoted by a um, late, um, late House Representative Conyers, that would actually explore the idea of reparations. So we're starting to see, I think, an understanding of this possibility. And so what we decided to do, I think, in our article was to center school funding as an important aspect of a reparations plan. There's been talk about um, funding and about the disparities that that Black students and families have experienced, but there's really been no kind of real laying out of how school funding could be addressed. And so that's what we tried to do in our article. So there is at least one state that does have its own reparation system, Virginia. I was really fascinating to read about that. Can you explain what that what that's all about? I'd be very happy to. And full disclosure, I'm a, I am a Virginian. I, <laughs> <laughs> Did you have anything to do with the oh, no, establishment? No. no, they didn't consult me about this, but okay. I'm really happy to see that this had happened. So Virginia like many Southern states, and after the Brown v. Board decision in 1954, a number of Southern states, including Virginia, engaged in a practice of, of massive resistance. And massive resistance was really just a variety of strategies that states used to circumvent the Supreme Court's um, you know, statement in Brown, the Board of Education at school districts would have to uh, desegregate and in Brown too, the court said that, you know, desegregation in all deliberate speed. So all deliberate speed in the South meant not at all. And so, you know, and so um, in Virginia, 
engaged in a 10-year period from 1954 to 1964, where the state just didn't, you know, the state engaged in a number of practices, including providing vouchers to white students to attend segregation academies. And um, and indeed, one school, one uh, county, Prince um, George, Prince George's County, in closed for five years. And so, um, all and their it, public schools closed for five years, and the white students went to private schools, and the black students had no schools whatsoever to go to. Is that right? That's exactly what happened. And the Supreme Court ruled in a case called Griffin, you know, V County School Board that said that that was unconstitutional, but there was a lot of harm done. You know, student, many people did not go back to school. Um, you know, they were just, you know, they just lost ground. And it wasn't just Prince, it wasn't just this county. It was throughout the state. And so what the state did that in, in the early 2000s was pass the uh, Brown Fund Act, which actually provided funding to students who, people who, Virginia residents, who uh, were denied an education during that per- that ten year period, they could then receive funding to attend, uh, you know, to not get their GED, um, maybe attend um, public or private schools of higher education, even to the point of getting a doctorate. So this is a great example, of really, of how states can do right by their black citizens who suffered and who were denied of education. And so we've argued is that, you know, not only is school school desegregation a prime area for this, but school finances as well. So your article also contains some fascinating history of several different federal reparations programs that um, were established um, right starting right after the Civil War was over. Can you um, describe some of those programs and what the results were? Yes, I would be glad to do that. Um, you know, one, um, you know, when we, we do go into sort of the fascinating history of reparations or in the case of Black Americans, the failure to provide reparations. And starting with the really famous uh, reparations of Field Order Number 15 uh, proposed by General Sherman, which, uh, prov- you know, which promised or 40 acres and a mule, you know, I know people might've heard of Spike Lee's 40 acres and a mule. Where did that come from? It comes from um, Fuel Order 15. And that was promising, but then, uh, you know. um, So uh, every slave or every male adult slave, is that how, former slave, is that how it worked? That would be how it worked. Every former male adult slave would receive 40 acres. Okay. And um, the promise, you know, but then Andrew Johnson, President Johnson, who, um, you know, came in after Lincoln's assassination, uh, did not support that. And so that bill then died, that idea then died. And in 1867, there was a bill for reparations for slavery that Congress, you know, for um, former, for the former enslaved uh, that was introduced by Congress that also failed. So, you know, there, there were just, there were, there was an op, there was a chance to make things right, right after the Civil War that, um, you know, the Union just passed on. But by contrast, we do see attempts, to, we do see remedies um, for Native Americans. There was a 1946 um, act for Native American tribes for lands taken. There was also one for the, the Alaska Native Claims Act in 1971. And most recently in 1988, um, there was a, um, you know, reparations for Japanese Americans who, um, exp- you know, who 
experienced the internment camps uh, during World War II. And, uh, but what was really interesting about this act was that it was limited to uh, people who were already, who, who were alive at the time. So as not to be, a rep, you know, so as to not to provide fuel for reparations bill for African Americans. So that was very concerning. There was, and it also shows that there was an awareness of, you know, of harm that had been done to African Americans as a result of, you know, the assault of being enslaved. So in other words, if you were a a child alive at that time and your parents' property was taken away from you, but your parents were no longer living, you couldn't, um, you couldn't uh, receive any of those funds. Is that right? And it was purposefully done in order not to provide uh, any sort of precedent for reparations to black Americans for slavery. Right. To avoid the multi-generational harm that um, we realize that slavery has, you know, that has caused it to black, to African Americans. Yes. But the Native American Reparations Acts did obviously provide multi-generational payments to the descendants of those Native Americans whose land was taken away from them. Is that right? That is true. Yeah. So it's just, uh, you know, <laughs> as, as I read this, I'm trying not to get too angry at the moment, but, you know, it's, it's hard at times. But, um, but, you know, but the time for, you know, the, you know, there's always a chance to do the right thing. Right. And so what we're thinking is that this may be the chance. And so we just keep pushing forward, making the argument, hoping that this time will be the time that we catch lightning. And that's what we're trying to do right now. And as you mentioned very briefly before, there there's a bill that was introduced in Congress, started by John Conyers in 1989, but reintroduced every single year since then to create a commission um, to look at the issue of reparations for slavery and ongoing discrimination. And 10 cities actually have passed resolutions supporting this, but not New York City. Is that right? I believe not New York City, but maybe this will happen. Just, yeah, well, um, maybe that there will be building. But, you know, again, I think this is a chance now. I think that um, we may start seeing I'm always an eternal optimist. So we may start seeing more, more cities, more towns start building toward recognition that this needs to be studied. And hospital number 40 only calls for study. You know, it only calls for a study. And from there, our state's in cities can decide for themselves how they would address the issue. I think I've heard more about reparations in the last year, um, partly as a result of Black Lives Matters movement and everything else, than I've ever heard about it in during my adult life, uh, you know, life. So I think it is a matter of great concern and conversation that's going on. Um, now, I'm really interested in the practical Um, application or um, implications of this. Now, if you could design the perfect reparations bill, the Congress called on you and Bruce Baker to actually write the bill or write the outline of a bill, how would you define those schools or districts that would receive more funding based upon their uh, uh, Black population? Because as you know, there are many, many school districts, including New York City, where we have lots of schools that are both Black and Latinx, um, and then other schools that are primarily white. Would New York City, the district as a whole, get money and then divvy out that money to to only schools that were predominantly Black as opposed to 
predominantly children of color, or how would that work? Well, let me first back up and say that um, uh, Bruce Baker and I have also written an article looking at um, school funding disparities for the Latinx population as well. So we actually have addressed this issue. So, you know, the reparations bill is at the reparations article that we've written is part of really a series of articles that we have used to kind of identify groups that have been historically underfunded. So I just want to first of all say that we do address underfunding for Latinx populations as well in our in our research. But uh, not in the form of reparations per se. Right. Not in the form of reparations. We, you know, not in the form of reparations. So what we would do what what I would call for is for cities actually to, you know, do studies, to states to do studies to actually explore how the actual you know, how their actual practices have created funding disparities for African-Americans. So they would, first of all, do that. And once they've kind of identified, you know, where this, where they had, where their pilot practices and federal practices have created these disparities, then they would design a program that would, um, you know, target the harm that has been done to this population. Now, this doesn't stop them from doing the same thing for other populations if they'd so desire. So, um, so each state or would, would do its own study or the federal government would do a study or who would, who would be actually in charge of doing this study? Well, what we would say is that, you know, um, in our article, we have laid out roles that the states could play in providing for um, reparations, but we also talk about the role that the federal government has played as well. And so in the late part of the paper, we start talking, we actually identify a number of policies that the federal government could, um, you know, the federal government could, that Congress could pursue. And this would include, among other things, um, you know, funding to correct, funding to address state funding black white funding disparities, and also an education fund for um, communities that have experienced um, funding disparities that the government contributed to or caused. So in each, so there would be studies both at the federal level and also at the state level that would be targeted to the role that each had played to create these disparities. And this is also, we, we point this out also because, you know, the without getting too much in the legal weeds about this, there could be the danger of creating a policy that is just too broad and not sufficiently tailored to address the specific harm done. So that is why it's really important for um, these various governmental entities to, provide, to, to, to do studies, identifying how they created this harm in each of these areas, and then also how they can then provide funding to correct that problem. So you guys have no proposed specific rubric about what population, what percentage population black students um, this should go to. You think that it should be up to further study by states and or the federal government to determine the allocation of additional funds. Is it okay with you if we take some calls? Because we have a little bit of time and I think people might really. That would be great. I would love to. 
Okay, callers, if you have questions for Dr. Green or thoughts about reparations and how they might be partly paid through the increased funding to primarily black schools, please call us at 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Now, as you, I'm sure you know, um, President Biden has proposed that Title I funds be tripled to schools. We don't know whether that's going to happen or not. Um, obviously, there's a, you know, a divided Congress, but um, that would surely help support a lot of the schools that Black students go to. So would you support that in, in, in addition? Um, and how does that sort of align with this idea or not align with this idea of reparations? I would support it. I would, you know, um, I think that I was, there were parts of the Biden proposal that I was certainly pleased about. One was that there was, um, there was certainly this increase in funding much larger than has gone before. $130 billion is, is quite a bit. So I was. Yeah, really and just pleased. to explain, sorry to interrupt you, but for our listeners, Title I um, means that schools that have a lot of poor kids and it, the proportion different in different areas, but I think in New York City, it's something like 80% kids um, and families under the poverty line um, do get extra federal funds. Unfortunately, um, it's not often enough to make up for the disadvantages that they experience. So sorry, go on, Dr. Well, no problem at all. I think that that is actually a good thing. The major problem that I see, I mean, the big problem that I see here is that, at least in the, in, in the Biden proposal, is that, I mean, there is, there is um, in that proposal written um, that there will be funding and that there are at least protection to ensure that in the next two years, that uh, there are any cuts that go, if there are any cuts that come forward, that, there, that the um, high poverty school districts are not the ones that are adversely affected. So there are things in this policy that I that I think are pretty good. The problem, though, with just with Title One funding in general, that that I see is that it doesn't target these sorts of historic funding disparities that you know that result in states you know, um, the, and black students receiving this disparate funding. And I think that it actually has the same sort of problem that Millikan II funding had back in the mid-1970s. And that is that you have additional funding to kind of provide compensatory education, but nothing that actually addresses the historic funding disparities. So what I would like to see in addition, so what I'm saying is this is good, what I would like to see is additional steps to ensure that there is, you know, that, that these historic funding disparities that Black school districts have experienced are addressed. And also that the Biden administration take the lead on actually maybe stepping in and identifying and, and requiring states and, and school districts, states that are having, un, you know, that have policies that lead to this historic underfunding of Black school districts to actually correct them. Indeed, there have been, um, in our article, we talk about how there have been these um, Dear Colleague letters where the Department of where the U.S. Department of Education states that, you know, um, policies or, or things that they wish to address. And they actually have identified school funding, um, racial school funding disparities as something that needs to be addressed, but they've never really taken any action to do anything about this. And so that's something that I would love to see going forward from the Biden administration. 
Well, actually, we saw something really bad happen in New York State when schools were allocated uh, millions of dollars in extra uh, CARES funds to address COVID, the COVID emergency. And what happened was our governor cut all the district, and it was allocated basically on the basis of Title I, and governor cut New York City's funding and other high-needs districts by exactly the same amount as we got extra from the federal government, which meant that we were no further ahead at all. And in fact, it was worse, and this is a little bit in the weeds, but I think it's really interesting because the federal government required districts to give part of those funds to private schools with poor kids. And so we ended up in New York City with less funds than we would have if we'd never been allocated federal funds in the first place. And this was highly discriminatory. And we're worried that with the additional um, federal funds that this will happen again. And so we're hoping that not only is the state um, barred from what's called supplanting, which is like cutting our funds by the same amount, but the city is as well, because New York City has a history of when we get extra money from the state cutting back on its own budget at the same time. So um, all these problems are very complicated and um, we want to make sure that schools actually end up with more money, um, especially the high need schools um, than, than they had in the first place. Um, something that about the Title I um, funds that we do have two calls. So I just wanted to say one more thing about Title I, which is the idea of integration obviously is a huge issue in New York City. We have very segregated schools, um, but a lot of the schools where uh, the administration and even parents were pushing for more integration, some of the parents in those predominantly black schools were very worried because they knew they would lose Title I funds. And those Title I funds were extremely important to keeping class sizes small and, and lots of extra services to kids. And so this is an ongoing um, debate in New York City, but one that is rarely covered in all the news stories about integration. The, the legitimate fears of Black and Latinx parents that their schools will be, get less funds once um, white kids start um, moving into, the, into their enrollment um, district. So we I do mean, have, yeah, well, go ahead. Project on that. This is what, and I mean, and what uh, Bruce Baker and I are calling for, you know, works in tandem really with the segregation plans. And I just want to say like, historically, what has been, a, you know, one problem that we've seen in our own research about uh, school funding disparities is that, you know, in efforts to desegregate, um, these funding disparities that we've written about over the years have been allowed to remain. So what we've been calling for is a two, you know, in, in addition to school desegregation, we want to make sure that Black communities are not underfunded as a result. So it's a two-pronged, I think it's a two-pronged strategy uh, for it's, these communities. It's complicated, though, because as you get more integrated schools, then they will be less predominantly Black, and depending on the formula for reparations, then possibly those schools would be less, lose some of the, those funds. So, you know, these are complicated issues, obviously. We do have a caller on the line. Um, uh, please, could you state your name, where you're from, and what your question is for Dr. Green? Are you talking to me? I'm sorry. I am talking to you. Hello. What's your name? Oh, okay. Um, my name is Edward, and um, 
I I understand a lot of what was said, and I I find um, that the the whole thing of of segregated schools in, in New York um, very personal. Um, as my daughter went to a school on the Lower East Side, and um, even though the school was in a community that was 70% black and Hispanic, um, the school was over 80% Asian. And there was an active, um, an active um, underground program, say, to get rid of those students who were in the school who were black and Hispanic, and most of them um, left. Uh, my daughter was uh, in a class that, you know, she lost. Uh, by the time I think she got to fifth grade, the, she was the only um, black student in the class. And um, complicated on top of this, it was found that the, um, the principal had been guilty of taking funds that she wasn't supposed to take. And what annoys me is that the um, DOE never moved. They removed her from the school, but they never removed her from education, and that she is still in another school affecting children. And I, I find that the problem has to be that the whole thing has to be shaken up from the roots because... Um, cosmetic surgery doesn't work. And um, it, it, it's just a feeling. I sent you um, a, a messenger, um, Leone, and um, I don't know if you looked at it, but I w really wish that you would because um, there's documents, there's, there's court orders, and, um, you know, and for five years, um, my daughter and I went through hell, and um, nobody seems to um, want to look at it. Thank you. Is your name, did you say your name was Edward? Yes, it is. I will look back at my messengers. Facebook is not the best way to reach me. Um, if you want to reach me, you can um, email me at leonyhameson at gmail.com. I'm, I'm not that great at Facebook, so I, but I will look okay. back at your messenger, and I will um, make sure to get in touch with you. And if I don't, please email me at that, uh, my first last name at Gmail so we can discuss this. Um, there's so many problems with the New York City public schools, we can't really get into them all now. One of the problems mm -hmm. is that principals, um, we've had corrupt principals, part of that has not been their fault because they've been driven to try to increase test scores over the years, especially when Mayor Bloomberg was, um, was, was our mayor because uh, principals were afraid that their schools would be shut if they didn't increase test scores. There is still test score pressure on principals because when uh, test scores come out, uh, if they don't have high test scores, parents tend to leave the school for other schools. And so high stakes testing is a huge problem in New York City and elsewhere. That's part of what drives um, the principals to unfortunately and illegally push out kids. We also see this among many charter schools. But, um, you know, integration, obviously, we need to have a more holistic notion of what is a good school rather than simply um, base it on high stakes tests. And part of what we should be looking at for good schools is how integrated they are and how well they meet all students needs, no matter whether they're high, high, um, high test takers, you know, get high test scores or not. Uh, do you have anything to add on that, Dr. Green? 
No, I, I, I think you, you, you've actually um, really did kind of highlight the sort of things that I would talk about. I mean, we definitely do need a holistic approach. And, you know, one that um, I think one where, and I, I really, my heart goes out to the caller. I mean, one that makes sure that we value all students and make sure that, um, that, you know, that all students' needs are met and that, and that they all feel that they belong. So I really hope that the caller gets um, the redress that he's seeking. Absolutely. Uh, we have another caller on the line. Hello. Uh, what's your name and, and what's your question or concern um, on this issue of reparations? If you have uh, good morning. Uh, this good is morning. P. I'm calling from the Bronx. I'm just trying to first I'm trying to understand is this we're really talking about reparations or are we talking about schools? Both, I think. Dr. Green? Reparations for schools. Okay, yeah, so I mean, um, that, well, go on ahead. Continue. This is this is where I get confused because I've heard this before. Um, so, out of all the other uh, cultures that have had to get reparations due to uh, society abusing them, um, I'm not even going to get into the point that we are last because we're always last. But my question is. Why is it geared towards schools in general? Why is it just not generally um, thought of as with everybody else? I mean, like you spoke of with the Japanese internment, uh, the the Jewish Holocaust, um, even the American uh, um, indigenous people, it was no um, like, uh, okay, you get the money, but you only get it for this. So I'm always a little um, disturbed when it's like a caveat attached to this reparations. Let me, let me wait. We, we only have two minutes, so please, please, uh, Dr. Green, and then I, we have to wrap up. I'll be quick about it. Yeah, I think that the way to review, the way to view what we our, our article is that um, is that this talks about how school funding can fit into a reparations program. So this is not exactly just the one-off. This is sort of like, I mean, like pe- people write about reparations, talk about a wide variety of reparations. They talk about it in terms of housing. They talk about it in terms of um, environmental justice. They talk about it in a wide variety of ways. And they also mention education as one of those areas that need to be addressed. It's just that um, what we have found is that at least at the K through 12 level, elementary, secondary school level, there really has not been any spelling out about how to address the, um, you know, historic funding disparities that black, that black communities have, have um, experienced. So what we tried to do in our article was to fill, you know, was to fill that gap in the reparations discussion. So view this as a part of a whole, not just not just a single thing. Thank you so much, Dr. Green. I think it's a fascinating idea, and I hope it really sparks a lot of conversations and debate in Congress and, and elsewhere about the need for reparations and how part of those reparations could be devoted to increasing opportunities for Black students by increasing funding to their schools. Um, 
This is Lainey Hameson, host of Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM Pacifica Radio. I'm going to put a link to this uh, Dr. Green's article in the resources part of our uh, website and our podcast. Our show is also available as a podcast if you missed the live version. Um, if you hear it through Apple, please leave a review. Also, please consider becoming a WBAI buddy to talk out of school by logging into give to WBAI.org or calling 516-620-3602. I'll be back soon with another episode of Talk Out of School. Until then, be careful and be safe. Thanks so much for listening. Soon as three o'clock rolls around. Finally lay your burden down Close up your books, get out of your seat Down the halls and into the street Up to the corner and round the bend Right to the juke joint you go in Drop the coin right into the slot You gotta hear something that's really hot With the one you love, you're making romance been wanting to dance.